The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning, everybody. It's so lovely to be here with you after another very difficult week, but also a week here in San Francisco with clean air and blue true dreams of skies, as the poet E.E. E. Cummings would say. And so we in San Francisco are also particularly grateful right now. I want to welcome you to this service, which is our honoring as Unitarian Universalists, where we draw from the rich traditions that feed our members. I want to thank you for being here for this service, where we begin with the shofar, Bill Klingelhofer, it's so lovely to have you here, a shofar in this service that in some ways for us will span the, the celebratory beginning of Rosh Hashanah, where it is said that on this Jewish New Year, it is a central mitzvah that you hear the shofar being blown. And we'll end the service with one long blowing of the shofar. That is how the Yom Kippur services are ended before you break the fast, when God's mercy has been extended and another year, another chance to write your life and, and your deeds into the book of life begins. So, Welcome here to this service when we will look at this old word called atonement, which is so incredibly important for our examination and our lived life as a people of faith, as a nation, right now. I want to thank everybody in particular who is here today. Their names are listed in the order of service, and I want you to take a time to look at them because each week for the last over six months, we have had people here making service possible, the limited 12 people who have not needed to be here, put themselves at greater risk for being here. And so I wanna thank all of them for being here today to make this worship service possible. I also want to thank you all. Last week's offering we took for the Armenian church that had had their um, community center, three fires set by an arsonist in the community center, and we took an offering and raised over $1,100, which will be sent to them with a note that I put in the mail yesterday. So thank you for that. And I want to give you a preview. This week's offering will be taken for drum, drum which is a collective of our people of color in the denomination that offers connection and resources and support and visionary inspired leadership within our movement. And this weekend is hosting a major conference. And so this offering is going as our sign of gratitude and support for the work of DRUM. And if you are a biracial or person of color who identifies that way, please look into joining DRUM as a piece of your connection to the fullness of what Unitarian Universalism has to offer. There are details in the order of service, which I invite you all to download as we begin the service. Thank you to Amy Kelly for our gorgeous flowers this morning. And now, Let's light this candle that we've lit every week since we first gathered together during this time of separation. We light it for all of you who are not here with us in body, but are here with us in spirit. 
and read also words by Marsha Falk in a book she wrote of inspired new words for the season of awe which we find ourselves in. She wrote, May the mind be clear, the spirit awake, as we light the candles and begin. Welcome to worship, everybody. I invite us to sing together our opening hymn for the morning. It's hymn number 217. The words and music are in your order of service. If you haven't already downloaded it for the morning, please do so, and let's sing together. Welcome. Please join me in saying our unison chalice lighting. The words are printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. I'm Sam. I'm your worship associate for today. Welcome. 
If this is your first time uh, tuning in to our services online, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, if uh, you would like, you can uh, sign up for our electronic newsletter. There's a link to do that in YouTube as well as in your order of service. Your order of service also has a number of events that are coming up and chances to connect, including our Zoom coffee hour. There are a few that I also want to call out especially. First, the small group ministry deadline is tomorrow. You can see details about that in your order of service. It's a great way to connect with other members of the community, especially now. Also, uh, our senior minister, Vanessa Rush Southern, uh, we are having a uh, vote to call her into formal ministry next week. Uh, so please attend that congregational meeting. If you have any questions for Vanessa or want to connect with her to learn more about that, uh, you can sign up for one of the chats with Vanessa. Uh, the first one of those is scheduled for 3 p.m. today, uh, and there are two other ones this week as well. Uh, please sign up if you're interested. I believe that is all of the announcements that I have for you this morning. Thank you. And now let's begin our worship together, centering in this time and space by singing, as we do each week, the meditation on breathing. Brielle will lead us through and then we'll lose ourselves in it as we sing it together. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. Now please join me in our spoken covenant and sung doxology. The words are in your order of service. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another. Yeah. <laughs> 
recognizing that there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes. We ring our gong this morning in honor of three such places of suffering and struggle. <clears throat> we ring our gong first, as we have since July of 2019, in honor of the seven children who lost their lives in federal custody in our detention camps. And we let its ringing symbolically stand for those adults who have lost their lives in these camps, who remain at them, many at risk of COVID, infection, and as we've heard most recently, for the women who are being pressured by ICE to have mandatory hysterectomies in horrors unseen or spoken of since the Nazi experiments on concentration camp victims. We ring our gong additionally once for the losses this week to COVID-19. This week, 36,883 people died of the virus globally. 5,204 people in the United States alone. We hold in our hearts all these losses. And also, appropriately, all who continue to risk their lives to provide essential services. Those who suffer job loss, whose lives are especially vulnerable to the disease, and all whose isolation and struggle through grief and loneliness is harder the longer this pandemic continues. Finally, we ring our gong once for the barrage of heartbreaking and unsettling news just this week, but especially for the people of Louisville, Kentucky, including our siblings of faith in that city. Last night, the lay and ordained people and peaceful protesters were kept hostage in the UU Church in Louisville, surrounded by armed police, arrested if they tried to leave, held for hours until an agreement could be reached. The descriptions this morning of tanks and helicopters in the city is chilling, as chilling as a nation's history in which violence against black women has gone largely unanswered by justice. So much to remember and to hold. May we keep all those we have named in our thoughts and in our prayers. And may we ease the tide of human suffering with acts of love and courage this coming week, howsoever we can.
God we know by many names and no name at all. Spirit of our ancestors who weathered hard times and injustice, loss and illness to bear us into this breathing world, who handed us this world with all its strengths and inherited sins. This morning, our backs are weary. Our heads are full and overwhelmed. Our spirits more than a bit battered and worn. By all it is, we've been asked to bear these last six months And each week, a barrage of more bad news. Loss, hurt, lies. A vacuum of leadership in Washington when we need it most. We wonder, will the center hold? Will it hold until we can reclaim and restore the world that is worthy of the best of us? And so we make space for lamentation this morning. Ancient and ever necessary in the human drama of two steps forward, one step back and then forward again, sometimes only inching toward the world we yearn to be part of birthing into reality. In a moment, let us hold shared silence, gathered from all our distant places into one strong worshiping body, held by love, held by common bonds and covenantal promises of the heart. And in the silence, may there be space to mourn, to throw back our heads and lament, to release, and to begin again. As our ancestors no doubt had to many times in their own lives. Let us be this long river of people of faith, mourning and choosing hope, choosing it willing it into being. Let us hold silence together.
fill your people with hope. O God of many names and no name at all, fill your people with hope and carry us forward again. Amen.
2016, after Trump was elected, a lot of people in my company were distraught, to put it lightly. People couldn't focus on work, folks were in shock, the company wasn't really doing anything to help. So I reached out to Human Resources and asked if I could facilitate a conversation. They said yes, but they re reminded me that our company was nonpartisan, so I should focus more on empathy and less on Trump. Focusing on empathy and understanding different viewpoints is a great intention, but you know what they say about good intentions. That conversation worked really well for some folks, folks who looked like me, who had a lot of privilege, whose identity wasn't under attack. I could tell that it wasn't working for everybody in the room, but I didn't know what to do to fix it. After we wrapped up, a few of the people stuck around and continued talking. They were mostly women, LGBTQ people, people of color. They were talking about what they wished the facilitated discussion was like, all of the topics that I didn't make room for, some of the ways that I made things worse. And even when you try to graciously accept feedback, it can be hard to put in the time above and beyond your job responsibilities to try to do something good and be met with nothing but criticism. But I stuck around with them, and I listened, and apologized, and thanked them for their feedback. And then, when I was facilitating the next discussion in a couple of days, I opened up by telling everybody that this wasn't a space for rationalizing and trying to understand the election or other voters. It was a space for being open about our own feelings. And when I said that, the group dynamic shifted. There were a couple of questions at the start about what I meant, mostly by the kinds of folks who looked like me, who maybe didn't want Trump to be elected, but who still felt safe and secure. But after that, there was deeper sharing. The conversation was much more powerful. It was deeper. It gave people what they needed. So I messed up. I made things worse. I got heavy criticism. And then I did better. And that experience has informed a lot of the justice work that I've done since then. I went to a talk by Robin D'Angelo, a scholar on whiteness and the author of White Fragility. And one of the things that she emphasized was that if you're doing anti-racism work as a white person, it's not a question of if you mess up. It's a question of when and what you do when that happens. It's pretty common for white folks to care about making the world a better place and then to start doing some justice work and then to say something racist or take the spotlight away from people who had been doing grassroots organizing uh, for a long time or face criticism and get defensive. And when that happens, it's common for those folks to stop doing justice work entirely. That's a reasonable reaction. After all, when you don't do justice work, when you're a white person who mostly hangs out with other white folks, uh, when you try to avoid any controversial topics, you don't usually get called racist. You don't usually get criticized for reinforcing white supremacy. So why spend your time volunteering for a group that acts like it doesn't even want to? Well, because it's important. I didn't facilitate that discussion at work because it was easy or fun or to get praise. I did it because I've done and said things that were racist, sexist, heterosexist, and otherwise not consistent with my values. 
I've bought stuff that was probably made in a sweatshop. I've hurt people. And I live in a society and in a world where all of those things are normal. There's blood on my hands, and this is how I clean them. Many of us know the hymn, Come, Come, Whoever You Are. But many of us don't know that the version in the hymnal took out part of the original Rumi poem. Though we've broken our vows a thousand times. Though we've broken our vows a thousand times. Though we've broken our vows a thousand times. Come, come, whoever you are. That is a hymn about atonement. Though we have fallen out of right relations, though we have unconsciously supported white supremacy, though we have sat back in apathy, thinking that there was nothing we could do, though we have facilitated conversations about injustice and made things worse and had to deal with criticism. Ours is no caravan of despair. Come, yet again, come. Come, mess up, then do better. The movement needs you. And now, for our offering, part of doing anti-racism work means supporting the people of color in our community. Our offering this week will go towards supporting the great work of DRUM, Diverse and Revolutionary Unitarian Universalist Multicultural Ministries. You can give by clicking the link in YouTube or in your order of service. And make sure to note that your offering, uh, that your donation is for the special offering uh, and not for your pledge. The offering will now be given and gratefully received. Thank you. Sing me. 
find melody caressing the shore, familiar to me, I've heard it before. This morning is entitled At One, or it's an excerpt from a piece entitled At One by the Reverend Victoria Safford. Imagine this. On the days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, every fall, every year, the people make their peace with anyone they have wronged or slighted or injured or in any way neglected in the past 12 months. The task is not to patch things over, smooth things over, reach a compromise or sweep mistakes and uneasy memories under the rug. The task is not to feel better. The task is ownership. The goal is truth for its own redemptive sake. I did this, I said this to you, and it was wrong. I neglected this, I botched this, I betrayed you thusly, I demeaned you, whether you ever knew it or not. This is the truth that we are both of us living. I ask you to forgive me. Imagine how many breaths you would have to take. Imagine how many doors you'd have to knock on, how many phone calls you'd have to make how many letters, how many lunches and coffees, how many awkward moments with your children and your parents and with strangers, that cashier you spoke to so sharply. Awkward is irrelevant. The task is not about comfort. It is about truth, about wholeness and holiness restoration. Imagine this. Here ends our reading. Now let's sing together our second hymn of the morning, hymn number 219. Oh, hear my people.
Imagine, Victoria Safford wrote, how many breaths you would need to take. Imagine how many doors you'd have to knock on, how many phone calls you'd have to make, how many letters, how many lunches and coffees, how many awkward moments with your children and your parents with strangers, that cashier with whom or to whom you spoke so sharply. Awkward is irrelevant. The task is not about comfort, it is about truth, about wholeness, about holiness, restoration. Imagine this. It's always hard to imagine the work of restoration, of what at this time of the year between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in the Jewish tradition is the season for the work of atonement or of seeking to be at one again with the world, with all other people in it, with yourself, really. We can't underestimate the challenge and the gift of this kind of restorative work, though. One notion of sin, popular among those seeking to redefine the word in more humanist terms, but also theists of the modern universalist variety who write off any notion of, of hell as some place that awaits any of us in an afterlife. One notion of sin is is for those who see the world more about, and life and religion, more about the here and the now and undergirded by a expansive power of love, is the notion of sin as the state right now, always, of living outside of right relationship. That can mean outside of right relationship with the best part of ourselves, the sweetest part, that truest part we know, out of right relationship with that same part in other people and in the world at large as we move through it. 
When people say in moments of despair at the conditions of the world that the sinners, the greedy, the cheaters, the beaters, the liars, the ones who tear down what is good and beautiful, when people say that those folks too often seem to get away with their perfidy, I completely understand the moral affront of it. I feel it too some days. I feel, I will admit, sometimes the desire for some good old-fashioned cosmic smackdown and otherworldly retribution for sins. And once that unworthy fantasy passes, I am reminded that, well, of what I actually believe with others in our religious world, that sin is this, is actually this alienation from self and others. I feel these days, especially when an ambulance passes, we have to take a moment to wish them well. That it's this alienation from self and others And the hell that we might talk about is very present always and inescapably in the everyday reality of being a person who walks through the world leaving so much carnage behind them. To be such a person, after all, my loves, if you just think about it, is to walk the earth, think about it, with so little real love coming out of you or reflected back at you, no earned trust anywhere you go, no spontaneous tenderness or real friendships. Does that sound like you got away with anything? By contrast, There are people in this congregation alone that I know, and you do too, who, as hard as life gets, are so determined to be kind and honest and courageous that you fall in love with them, that you smile spontaneously when they enter the room, that you would do anything for them, even when you hardly know them. You might say they carry heaven with them. You might say that heaven and hell are very much at hand all the time, my friends. It just depends on how you live your life, which one you find yourself in. And if I'm right on all this, then life itself is the fastest game of karma in town. And atonement is all the more important as we move through this world to make it what we hope for it in our lives. I imagine that right now it's hard to think of this world attending to atonement of, because it's not much, but we should be. So what does atonement ask of us? Let's do a big, quick, deep dive. Atonement first asks that we see that it's not often easy. 
it is awkward and worse to have hurt someone, right, by mistake, because maybe we were so caught up in our own world or paid so little attention to other people's worlds that we didn't see that we could be doing harm. That feels awful. And then to have hurt someone because we were being passive aggressive, oof, that's even harder. And to admit that we were being maybe aggressively aggressive in some circumstances, mean-spirited and small-hearted, those are the admissions I think that we can hold inside for a long time denying or avoiding. But none of it feels good to say, right? And yet the first step in atonement is admitting that we are capable of betraying the best in ourselves the best of our dreams for our relationships with others. As Sam said, we will break our vows a thousand times. And the first step is this confession. I was listening to an interview this last week with Ibram Kendi. He was being interviewed by Brene Brown about his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Some of us read the book together in the Minister's Book Club, and others I know have read it on your own. I had forgotten or not thought about the fact that he begins the book in many ways with a confession of his own mistakes. Maybe you remember how vulnerable and personally revelatory he is in the first chapters. In them, Kendi writes about the ways he bought into racist ideas and how he conspired with them in his own life choices. He said those first chapters took him a year to write, that there was a ton of shame about naming what he had thought and felt about himself and black people and white folks. In fact, it wasn't until he got diagnosed with colon cancer and wondered if he would ever see the book published that he said he felt free to just write all of it because getting it out into the world was more important than any of the conflict and shame he felt about what he needed to say in it. What I took away when I read that book wasn't at all Kendi's confession. It was the way he was asking me and other Americans, white folks and others, to take responsibility for actively dismantling racism and all that that might entail. He was, you might say, inviting us to enter back into right relations with each other, with him, with other black folk, with our nation's ideals too, with all of who we were. And we would have some atoning to do, especially we white folks. But I hadn't caught that he began the book with his own atonement. And I certainly didn't know how hard that was for him. Of course, Ibram Kendi wasn't naming the hard and shameful things that he had done and not done just to make pain for himself or because he had nothing better to do. He did it with a goal in mind of more healing, of more wholeness, of restoration. He did it imagining what might be. 
and having that draw him into and forward through his work. He said in the interview, the heartbeat historically of racism has been denial, has been to deny that one's ideas are racist, that one's policies are racist, and certainly that oneself and one's nation is racist. By contrast, the heart of anti-racism is confession. Admission is acknowledgement, is the willingness to be vulnerable, is the willingness to diagnose ourselves and our country and our ideals and our policies. Like with anything else, the first step is acknowledging the problem. We can't even begin to change ourselves, he said, of acting in an anti-racist fashion if we're not even willing to admit the times in which we were being racist. What he is saying is true about our anti-racist work and it is true about any work of healing and wholeness making and restoration, isn't it? The first step being moving from some kind of denial with a confession that sometimes talks about what went wrong, where we went awry, some place we acknowledge that we betrayed someone or some principle that was sacred and sweet to us and that isn't okay to have left behind injured. Such vulnerability in that first step, how hard. And then, then comes what Judaism calls teshuvah, the turning, the next step in the turning, really. The work of changing our ways, of making real amends, the literal restoration of relationship to the best and the sweetest and the dearest parts of ourselves and the best and the sweetest and the dearest ways we can connect to one another and to the world, the making, you might say, of heaven and not hell here on earth. So here in church and in our lives, we people of faith, faith not in dogma, not in any notion of what the ground of all being or the face and scope of a God might be, but faith in things like goodness and love and mercy and justice and honesty. We, we're called to learn and practice atonement. We have to, right? Because the world needs people who can model what it means to get back into right relations, not just continue to leave carnage behind and pretend that that's normal. And we would be blessed to always be such a people, wouldn't we? What will that mean? What does it mean? Every time we do it, you know, it means, as Robin D'Angelo says, letting go of some notion of ourselves as good, some fossilized good 
that can fend off any criticism or implications that we might have done wrong and just be instead people seeking to be in right relationship. It means that we always have to put our goals, our biggest, most beautiful goals ahead of our egos. Catch ourselves when we dig in our heels in defensiveness and turn to wonder, as Parker Palmer says, to wonder in a moment if we've shut our ears just when something new might break open our world, tear down walls that we've tended to for far too long and for no good reason at all. Being a people skilled in atonement means that we will let go of believing that intent is what matters and realize how the way that what we do impacts someone is actually what matters and learn to the power of an apology, sincere and caring, to lessen the sting of even the inadvertent hurt We will learn also the accountability that comes with the turning. The commitment to do and be different, to allow ourselves to be changed. And all of this, my friends, toward the goal of restoring us each and all of us to this way of being together that really is the way we were meant to be, what we were made for to create a little heaven wherever we go, find and create it in every relationship we stumble into, leave a trail of sweetness behind us. Imagine, Victoria Safford said in the part of the reading beyond what we already shared this morning, imagine something yearns in us to come round right something creaky, rusty, heavy, almost calcified within us tries, in spite of us and all our fears and self-deceptions, to turn and turn and creak and turn again and come round a little truer. Something in us stretches toward imagine. Imagine and blessings to all who live into the imagining. May we reign sweet love, harmony, restoration of the best of us down upon this hurting, waiting world. Our closing piece of music today, and you are welcome to sing along with it, the words slightly changed to be more restorative, thank you, Bill, is another version of what atonement means (laughs) in life. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and let's start together again.
I have found when my chin is on the ground. I pick myself up, dust myself off, start all over again. Don't lose your confidence if you slip. Be grateful for a pleasant trip and pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again. Work like a sword inspired till the battle of the day is won. You may be sick and tired, but that's how the job is done. Will you remember the women and men who had to fall to rise again? So take a deep breath, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again. our comings and our goings. May the light of love shine upon us. Out from within us be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen.
The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.